to the other team, to the Front for European Philosophy. Uh, thanks everybody for coming tonight. My name is Christina Musold. I'm a fellow here at the Philosophy Department at LSE and Deputy Director of the Forum. And it's my great pleasure to introduce uh, Barry Smith to you to today, whom uh, many of you probably will already know. And he's going to present um, to us perspectives on taste, philosophy, and neuroscience. And this is part of a series of two talks, actually part of our revisions uh, event strand, in which we invite a speaker specifically to give two talks on the topic so that we can engage in a bit more detail with the um, ideas. So today, um, so Barry Thomas, for those of you who don't know, is a professor of philosophy at Birkbeck, uh, University of London, and director of the Institute of Philosophy. And his interests are in uh, language and mind, and also obviously in taste, uh, including the taste of wine which is another thing uh, I'd like to mention. So today we're going to hear a talk on um, the nature of tastes and tasting in a bit more general terms. <coughs> and then next week he will give a talk, at, which will not take place here, but at the Institute of Philosophy, on uh, the philosophy of wine. And that lecture will actually be followed by an actual wine tasting, <laughs> to, uh, which you all warmly invited. You will need tickets to attend the wine tasting. The lectures are free and open, but uh, if you would like to attend the tasting it well as well, you would um, have to get a ticket for that. You can find the information in the leaflet and also on our website. Um, so please get in touch with us for that. And um, with that, without much further ado, I will just hand over to Barry and look forward to the presentation you will give us. Thank you. Thank you, Christina and Juliana. It's lovely to be here. Uh, I've been following your series of uh, exciting seminars and attended some of them, and so it's a great pleasure to be uh, invited to participate. So um, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about um, connections between philosophy and neuroscience when looking at taste, and um, when I give this talk to uh, neuroscientists, they say, that's great, uh, where's the philosophy? <laughs> and so I thought I would tell you a little bit about why a philosopher would be interested in this topic. So um, the word taste is very um, ubiquitous. It, it, the word taste is, is used in all sorts of ways for what you think uh, is going on in your mouth, for a certain sense you might have, the sense of taste to, to be able to discover the flavor of things. It's used uh, more generally in the aesthetic way when people talk about good taste or exercising one's taste. So the word is used in far too many ways, and, and we need to get it a little bit under control. But it was because of these connections that in the 18th century there was a very exciting idea. The exciting idea was if you wanted to talk about beauty and art, you wanted to talk about you know, these exalted states of judging the aesthetic merit and quality of something, you should see it as on analogy with the very earliest sort of discriminations we do, the discriminations we do from our earliest experiences as infants, and that is accepting or rejecting things that go into our minds. So taste is something that has an immediate hedonic quality. You pop it in your mouth and you know. You either like it or you don't like it. It's seldom neutral. And uh, even if it's neutral, you tend to say it's bland, it's tasteless, and that's not necessarily a good thing unless it's water. We like water to be tasteless, and it turns out that what counts as tasteless to you and to me might differ, and it depends on the water you were used to drinking uh, 
to begin with. So it's a Scot having grown up in Glasgow, whereas we know the finest water comes from Loch Catherine. Uh, I come down here and I taste London water, and it's very strange. But people who've been used to London water will find that tasteless and neutral, despite the fact it's been recycled five times and seen the business end of too many Londoners. Um, true. Uh, they have difficulty even getting the estrogen out of the water down here. Uh, now, if you, if you go with this 18th century idea, the 18th century idea was, look, we make discriminations very early on between whether we like foods or we like drinks or we like wines and so on, and that's a kind of everyday regular thing we do, and then you can scale that up to looking at fine art and judgments of aesthetic quality. And some people objected to that on two grounds. One ground was, well, isn't taste really too simple and primitive to be the basis for judging something like a work of art, a work of literature, a work of music? Isn't it too simple when you're just talking about a, a, a sensation in your mouth and a, an immediate reaction of liking and disliking? And the other thing people said was, well, isn't there really an awful lot of snobbery in this idea of taste as a, as a ground for aesthetic judgment? Because it just means some people use their authority and say, oh, this is good taste, that's bad taste, and they're exercising a kind of uh, snobbish preference, believing they have a kind of elite ability to detect things. And I think both of those criticisms of this view are false, and I think they're false for interesting and, in fact, empirical reasons. One is, tastes are not so simple as just things that go on in our mouths, and we'll find out it's actually quite difficult to taste things. Uh, so starting with taste doesn't mean you're dealing with something so simple it can't be scaled up. And secondly, the idea that uh, there might be just a kind of prejudice about people saying, well, this is to my taste, is a, is a way in which people don't distinguish between judgments of taste, which are judgments about the quality of what you're tasting, and judgments of liking or personal preference. So when you say something is to my taste, that just means you like it. But when you say something has a good taste, or when something <coughs> has a kind of high quality, it doesn't follow you're going to like it. It might be that you can recognize the quality of what you're tasting without it, it, it belonging to you personally. Okay, so those are some of the kind of background reasons. Again, as Christina said, another reason I got into this was I got interested and excited about wine, and I, I thought a lot about wine, and I wondered, when you taste a glass and I taste a glass, do we taste the same thing? Is the taste of the wine in the glass, or is it just in our minds? Uh, are there standards of taste? Does the, can somebody pronounce on what is, what is uh, you know, good quality wine or bad quality wine? Should we, should we agree with what experts say or just what we say? So all these questions came up, but I couldn't carry out that project until I found out what taste and tasting was all about. And then I discovered it's very complicated. So let's, let's look at it. So what are we aware of when we taste chocolate? So people say how it tastes. But the um, question is, does chocolate itself have a taste? Many, many, many people. I mean, there's a sort of confederacy here of, um, it's a kind of unholy alliance of philosophers, sensory scientists, novice tasters, food and wine writers, they're big offenders, um, will all tell you that tastes are not in the, the thing itself. Tastes arise in us. They're responses we have to the things that we're consuming. 
And that means that uh, you can't talk about the taste of the wine or the taste of the chocolate. You've just got to talk about your individual reactions. And it's interesting that wine critics will say this because they say two things. They say, taste is subjective. It's just a matter of what each individual experiences or likes. And then they go on to tell you which wine's better than which and tell you that this vintage is better than that vintage and this winery is better than that. What is going on? There's a confusion there and it's a philosophical confusion. They're both committed to the idea there are facts of the matter about which is better than which and, and also to the idea it's all subjective and individual. So when I started complaining about this to wine critics in print, I met with huge hostility. People came after me and said, you know, we don't need a philosophy of wine, it's ridiculous. You know, I know what wine is, it's just subjective, it's just a matter of what I taste. And I had to point out to them again in print, um, you may know an awful lot more about wine than I do, but subjectivity, objectivity, that's core business in philosophy. This is what we do, you know. And if you, if you talk about that, you've stepped onto my turf, so I have the right to challenge you. All right. So here's the subjectivist view. The subjectivist view is that what we call tastes are just um, properties of our experience, and there are simple and then there are subtle versions of this doctrine. So um, here's the simplest version. According to the simplest version, tastes are just sensations on the tongue when we consume uh, foods or liquids. You want to know how something tastes, pop it in your mouth, you have an experience, that's its taste for you, you have an impression of liking or disliking. Now, later I'm going to tell you liking and disliking is an important distractor from issues of taste, but we'll get there. So this is a very subjectivist view because it says, look, these sensations can't get anything right or wrong, they're just how it is with you. And in this way, there's nothing more to a taste. A sensation doesn't declare anything beyond itself. And given that that's, that's how things are, um, they're immediately known to us as the way they appear because they're just pieces of our experience. And so, you know, you're bound to know them. It's just something consciously going on in you. So, um, according to the more subtle view, what we call tastes are actually not just something going on in the tongue, they're flavours. And as we'll see, flavours are actually made from taste, touch and smell. Whenever you're eating or drinking something, you're always getting three senses participating, taste, touch and smell. It's not just happening on the tongue. And insofar as it is happening on the tongue, you're getting something moving across the tongue, giving you touch. So think of whether something is oily or creamy, whether it's <coughs> crunchy, okay, whether it's... Um, uh, and also, well, we're going to see how smell interacts with it, but we're, we're going to see that touch, taste, and smell always combine. And so the, the recent view from uh, psychology and neuroscience shows us that many sensory inputs, and in fact, we're going to worry later on whether we should stop at taste, touch, and smell. What about sight? What about hearing? Some psychologists talk easily about visual flavor, and others talk about the effect of audition on flavor, as we'll see. So... Um, this view is subtle uh, because it suggests that um, the, the flavours that we pick out are the impact of aroma and texture as well as uh, properties of the tongue. Now, this is still a subjectivist view, but instead it says taste, what we call taste is not simple, it's complex. And it also tells us that we don't necessarily realize it's complex, that we're missing bits about our own experience, that the brain is doing this clever job of organizing all these inputs and then creating this concoction 
the flavor of something. It's very, very constructed, but it's constructed in your head, not, in, not, in, not on the plate, as it were. So that's, again, a subjectivist view, but it's a subtle view. So here's Martin Yeomans from Sussex telling us, although the experience of the sensory qualities of a food are often described in terms of how it tastes, in practice, this experience of flavor is a complex interaction. Okay? Multiple sensory inputs. But the seemingly unified experience of the taste of pineapple, you just know what the taste of pineapple or the taste of strawberry or the taste of banana is, that doesn't give you clues that it's a complex interaction. So there are facts about your experience that are missed just by having that experience. Now, I contrast that with the view I like, because I'm, again, in print, defending the objectivity of uh, tastes of wines. I think wines have got tastes. I think when ridiculous billionaires buy beautifully made, handcrafted wines and keep them in their cellars and trade them with one another until they've gone bad and nobody gets to drink them, I think, gee, there's a way that tasted, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. I wish I knew how it tasted, but we'll never know. I don't think the taste is just in ours, I think it's it's in the wine. So on this view, I think that when we we engage in tasting, the act of tasting or sipping, what you're doing is perceiving something that can get what you're perceiving right or wrong. You can perceive it correctly or incorrectly. And that what you're perceiving is a complex configuration of flavor properties that reside in the food or the liquid. And... um, I think that flavors, as well as being properties of foods or liquids, I think they have a temporal dimension. And especially that's true when we consider wine, that a flavor is something that kind of evolves and endures. And even ordinary flavors, if we leave crisps or biscuits out for two or three days, they change their flavor properties. They go stale. So there's a kind of flavor contour. Now, um, that means that what we call flavor is actually a flavor profile. And then when we are tasting, we are getting snapshots at one moment of a bit of the flavor that extends and endures through time. And the more you taste, especially with wine, and I hope some of you will come and do this next Thursday, the more you taste with wine and the more you take snapshots at different times, the more you understand where you are in that profile and how things have changed as the wine uh, warms up a little bit or as the wine uh, gets more air. Uh, or as the wine uh, starts to descend and disintegrate. So um, that's, that's the objectivist view, and it's contrary to the, to the other view. So, yeah, just sums up what I said. I think that um, the properties of flavor are emergent properties of the food's chemistry, or, or, but it's not reducible to the food's chemistry. Okay. And given that you only get snapshots, you need prior knowledge or experience to know what it is you're tasting, just as chefs will taste a dish that they're making and they will judge on the basis of what they're getting what else they need to add or how they need to correct or adjust or heat or lower the temperature to get at what they want. So notice, notice that a snapshot is very different if you have prior knowledge. So I don't think there's such a big difference between novices and experts. I think some research has been done on this and shows that you know we're not all so different whether we're experts or uh, beginners at tasting. We probably have similar apparatus and if we have normal uh, functioning we probably get at roughly the same sensory input. But the people who know what that sensory input means in the context of a developing flavor, they can judge something we can't. They can judge 
I know what this will be like if I heat it up or cool it down. I know what this will be like if I leave it to warm up and so on. I know what it would be like if I add another spice or, or, or correct for an imbalance of the flavor. So for those of you who never considered that before, just and, and like sports analogies, think of, think of what it would be to see on a video screen a goal scored in a soccer match. Okay, you see the goal scored, you see the skill of it. But it would make a big difference if you knew at what point in the game was that goal scored. Was it right at the end? Who was winning? Who was losing? Which team was more dominant? If you knew all of that, you'll get a different reading of what is given to you, even though if you didn't know that, you'd get the same information. So I think we get the same information, but what we do with it is what's going to make the difference between novices and experts. Okay, so let me warm you up for the objective view. Um, why is it that I think that we're getting information not just about ourselves, but about the world? Well, here's the sort of things we say. By tasting a strawberry, you can tell whether it's ripe or not. By tasting a cup of coffee, you can tell whether it's got sugar in it or not. Um, so you can say, oh, that's not my coffee, that's got sugar in it. That must be your coffee, I say, handing it to you. Okay. Um, if you taste a dish, you can tell how piquant it is, if it's spicy, and if somebody doesn't like spices, you say, oh, don't have that, it's too spicy. So we, see, we talk, the folk talk, you and me, we talk as though foods actually had flavors, even though the philosophers who try to tell you, you know, flavor is just a sensation in the, in the tongue. Philosophers say, this is just a common sense view that you know, taste is just some subjective experience. You think, wait a minute, there's a big difference between common sense and what philosophers say about common sense. You want to be very suspicious of the second. Right. You know, philosophers talking about common sense is a million miles away from common sense. <laughs> Look and see is the answer. Here's some experiments that uh, Charles Spence and I are doing. Can you tell when you're tasting champagne? Uh, we managed to get champagne houses to to fund this research. This is fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> so soon we'll have to put their logos on the bottom yeah, once, it, once the research is done. So can people tell whether the champagne was made from just white grapes like Chardonnay or made from a mixture of white and red grapes, Pinot Noir? Um, and it won't make a difference to the color because they take the juice right off the skins. But can they tell? People think they can. They not necessarily think they do. Can they tell whether it's got um, some sugar in the, the dosage that makes the refermentation uh, come out as brut or extra brut or nature, which is the new French habit of putting no sugar in it. So we've got a whole load of um, Oxford undergraduates, including the Oxford tasting team, doing these experiments, uh, <laughs> finding out and, and telling champagne houses every time, I think we need a bit more research. I think we should move it to London. I think we should move it to London. Exactly, exactly. Why should they have all the fun? Um, Okay, so um, given that I think tasting leads to knowing, knowing things about the things you're tasting, um, this is knowledge that's very important for guiding successful food choice. If you're going to be able to get at the foods that you want and you like, and, and some of the things you need, some salts, you know, some things with uh, fat and protein in them, um, it matters that you're able to tell about the food. So how do we get that information, and also what would make a difference between novices and experts? Well, um, here are some of the questions that uh, I think we should ask when we talk about taste. Can we miss things in our experience when we're tasting things? And I think the answer is yes. Not everything is revealed to us all at once. It's actually quite difficult, especially if you're tasting a wine. You, you taste it, 
And, and it, here's, here's something that's very interesting. This is why liking and disliking is a distractor. I give you a glass of wine, and if we had enough funding, so please, if there are any people willing to put huge amounts of funding behind uh, uh, the Forum for European Philosophy, we could do this. We could have, we could have glasses in our hands as we're doing this. Well, um, when you're drinking a wine, if I say to you, well, what do you think? The question, the answer you usually get is, oh, I like it, or oh, I don't like it. I didn't ask that. I, I asked, what, what's it like, not what's it like for you? And notice that it's quite difficult to say what it is like and to separate your reaction to it from it. Um, and if I say to you, um, what do you think? Is it, is it more fruity? Is it more floral? You'll sort of try it again. And the way you'll try it again uh, will maybe give you an answer to that question, which was not immediately obvious. And sometimes when you're drinking wines with people, you can say to them, oh, did you get the, the ripe pear? And what they do is, without retasting, without taking another sip, they say, ah, oh, pear, yes, that's it. That's the flavor. Which means that you can miss things in your experience, and then they can pop out when you know how to investigate them. Also, um, the categories we use can make a difference. So um, Charles Spence, my collaborator, has, has written papers with Hessen Blumenthal, and we were lucky enough to be uh, in a restaurant where uh, Blumenthal had sent a bottle of, as we thought, champagne with his compliments. And as the, the uh, waiter came around and poured it, I took it, and I smelled, tasted it, and I thought, God, that's a lousy champagne. Oof. And then I tried it again, and I thought, wait, 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 wait. That's a Prosecco. Wow, that's a wonderful Prosecco. <laughs> so just changing the category had made this difference as to whether I thought this was something of good quality or something of poor quality. So notice that it's not true that experience, just because it's happening in your mouth and it's happening very quickly, explains everything that you need explained all at once. It doesn't. There's also a difference. If you concentrate on bits of your experience, you can change the temporal scale of what's happening. So quite often you tend to think as you swallow something, oh, I swallow it and it's all happening at once. Oh, and there's the taste. But if you slow down and concentrate on what happens at the beginning as the wine enters your mouth, what happens as you swallow? Is there a persistent aftertaste? Does it go on and on? What happens between the two? What happens in the, the mid-palate between the kind of fruity attack at the beginning and the swallowing at the end? Does anything go on or does it dip a little bit? When you get people to do that exercise, they can change the temporal scale of their own experience. So experience is not just, as it were, always, it's just there, you can't be wrong about it. And yet philosophers talk about conscious experience as the place where how things appear is how they are. There's no appearance-reality distinction. You know, how things appear to you is just the way that... No, 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 no. Even in experience, you can miss things about your experience. You can get it right or wrong. So when Descartes, the famous uh, skeptic, uh, said, or with a skeptical doubt or method of doubt, said, I'm going to doubt everything I can, everything I previously believed, I'm going to reject it, and then I'm going to just accept the things which you know, I cannot doubt, he thought the things he couldn't doubt were his own immediate experience. I can't know how reality is, but I know how things appear to me. Well, he just didn't go far enough. You can doubt your experience, you can doubt how things appear to you, you can be wrong about that, and you can change it by different ways of thinking about it. So that makes this exercise in looking at tasting interesting for philosophers. All right. Um, now, there's a worry. Another reason for people thinking taste is subjective is this. Um, 
You have different thresholds for sweetness, for sourness, for bitterness. If I tested you, I would find out that you have different levels at which you will find things sour and bitterly sour, different levels at which if I just raise the level of sugar and you say, oh, it's sweet, uh, and some people will still say, no, it doesn't taste of anything, and then it'll be sweet. So there are these differences between us, and also there's a big difference in terms of how we react to this substance, propothiouracil, um, or prop, as it's called in the trade. So if I'd thought about it, I would have brought some strips. So you have strips soaked in this substance, and you, you hand it out to people, and they put the, the strip with prop on their tongue, and you get three reactions. First reaction you get is, oh, you see the face just screwing up, and people say, oh, it's awful, and you have to make sure there's water nearby, and they can rinse, and they can get rid of the, the strip. Mm -hmm. There are other people who say, mm, it's all right, it's a little bit bitter, it's not, not, not much. And then you get the third group who say, I think you've given me one without anything on it. And you think, uh oh, uh oh. So they're, they're the non-tasters, right? <laughs> so there are non-tasters, there are tasters, most of us in the middle, and then there are super tasters. So super tasters are the people who have more papillae on the tongue, more dense packing of papillae on the tongue. And when you give them prop, it's unbearably bitter. They also find Brussels sprouts unbearable. Um, they usually find most wines unbearably acidic. They don't like tannin. So there's a whole set of things that are too sensitive. So it's very funny that when this word super taster, which is a bit of a misnomer, came out, all the wine critics said, well, I'm obviously a super taster. And then they were tested, and they weren't. And some of them were even non-tasters. And then they were thinking, oh my god. Um, and it's okay. It's a good job you're not a super taster, we had to assure you know, Janice Robinson and, and Robert Parker. Because if you were, you couldn't drink wines. They would be awful. They'd be just too, too sour. But notice that given there are these differences between us, individual differences, don't we live in different taste worlds? So what sense does it make to talk about the taste of the wine? Uh, that's, that's supposed to be one of the motivations for the subjectivist view. All right. Now, people think, well, taste is immediate, it's a personal experience, it's transitory, it's ephemeral, it's non-contestable. You know, you, I can't say this is delicious, and you try it, and you say it's not, and I say, no, 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 you're wrong, it really is. Doesn't seem as though I'm entitled to say that to you. There's how it is for me. It's hedonic. I like it. I don't like it. So um, uh, notice that there are several things to say on the other side about why it's, it, you should think of perceptual experience, think of tasting as perceptual, as giving you knowledge of the outside world. Because look, the senses are geared up to give us knowledge of our surroundings. You know, we've got hearing, we've got sight, we've got touch. And all of these senses are used all of the time to tell us how things are in our immediate environment. Smell, the same. Wouldn't it be very funny if all these senses give us knowledge of uh, the, the, the surroundings, and then when it comes to taste, you're told, just make it up. Just do whatever you want. Go your own way. Just, I don't know, amuse yourself. It would be very funny. Why would that sense not give you something objective about the world when all the others do? Well, I'm going to tell you in a moment or two that we don't even have to take that route because it's not the case, as I've already mentioned, that taste works by itself. It always works with the other senses, touch and smell and maybe other things too. So those people who think of taste as sensations, we'd have to think of them as like pains, just something that goes on in you that doesn't carry any commitment to what's out there. Because notice if you cut yourself, you don't think, oh, there's a sharp pain in the world and it's, it's sort of affecting me. No, you just think it's happening in me. It's just, right. So is that how taste is? I don't think so. 
All right. And it's also not true that I'm always just talking about my sensations. When we talk about foods and wines, we're talking about the quality of a wine, how balanced it is, and when we talk about that, we're not talking about something in, in the mouth, we're talking about something more widely. And also, when you talk about the texture, when you say, um, you know, if, you, if, you, if you're eating this kind of uh, grainy or crunchy or creamy food, it's got a particular texture, you don't want to say that your sensation is creamy, it's the food that's creamy. So you're getting you know, objective information about the thing you're in touch with or in contact with. So if texture is part of flavor, it belongs there. And also notice philosophers usually do this sort of trick, you know, talking about color. G is the way you see green, the way I see green. Maybe you see what I see when I'm looking at a red thing, and I, I see uh, something green when I'm looking at a red thing. You know, so maybe our colors are different. But hardly ever do you get those discussions about taste. You know, nobody says starts a philosophy class by saying, can a banana taste like an orange to you? I mean, if it did, there would be something wrong with you or the banana, I think. You know, it's just that's just kind of clear. All right. But why most people are subjectivist is because they think disagreements arise not over the simple things like banana. None of us are very confused about that, but about complex things, about wine, say. But here, they tend to confuse issues about taste with issues about personal preference or what is to your taste. So here's, here's a typical way the conversation goes. It's often supposed that if you like a wine and I don't, so you like this wine, you, you bring it to me, you think, this is utterly delicious, try this. And I try and I say, oh no. And you often say, well, look, um, it must taste different to you, because if it tasted to me the way it tasted to you, I would see it was delicious, right? So clearly we're, we're, we're getting a different experience. We're tasting it differently. But why think that? Well, the thought goes, if I could taste it as you tasted it, I would be bound to like it. But why? It's entirely possible that the wine tastes exactly the same to you as it does to me, but you like that taste, and I don't. So it's possible to think of taste as one thing and liking or disliking another, right? To see them as separate. And people fail to separate how something tastes and whether they like it or not. And they, they, they mix up the hedonic reaction with the identity of the taste. You know, so people, that's why children say, broccoli's disgusting. No, broccoli tastes of broccoli. Whether it's disgusting or not is a fact about you. Whether it tastes of broccoli is a fact about it. And there's a reason for thinking that we should keep separate liking from taste identifications, because the brain keeps them separate. So we know that you process these in different places. You process uh, the identification of flavor in the orbital frontal cortex, roughly in a place behind here, and that you process the liking or disliking in the nucleus accumbens. That's the bit that goes crazy when you get chocolate. Now, um, that's not necessarily a reason to say they're separate in experience, but they're separate in processing. But we can even separate them in experience because of this thing called stimulus-specific satiety. So stimulus-specific satiety shows you a way liking comes apart from taste. I give you a bit of chocolate, you're very happy. Give you another bit of chocolate, you're very happy. Give you another bit of chocolate, you're happy. Give you another bit of chocolate. Say, enough of the chocolate. I say, no, 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 you're going to have it. I give you another bit. I, I make you eat the chocolate. If I keep force-feeding you the chocolate, there's a time when the chocolate is 
disgusting, when it's just awful. You know, you, you feel that kind of cringe as I keep giving you more chocolate. I've given you far too much, you don't want any more. The hedonics plummet, right? It becomes anhedonic for you, you don't want it. But you can still identify that the chocolate I'm giving you is the same chocolate, right? It tastes the same, it's got the same intensity of flavor. If I swap the chocolate, you might be able to bear it more. And notice that's not about being full, that's about the chocolate. If I do this to you, and then say, you say, no more, no more, no more. I say, okay, would you like a bit of cheese? Yeah, cheese would be good. Right. So it's not that you're full, it's that you become sated, satiety for a particular stimulus. And that just shows you you can pull apart the hedonics and the identity of a flavor in an individual, right? They're not always wedded together. So we don't confuse liking and disliking with the flavor something has. Okay, um, all right. So there's this critical assumption that people use that tastes are qualities of my experience if they're subjective. Subjectivists, and they say these flavors are revealed just as they appear. There are no hidden features or hidden natures. We know what it's like to taste sweet or sour or salty or bitter, and flavors are just as they appear to be. Um, well, as I said, I don't think that's right. You can slow down and pay attention to what you're drinking or eating, and that will give you big differences in your experience. Um, so not everything is known all at once. For example, wine tasting, which we're going to do if some of you come next time. So wine tasting is hard. Are you this sort of taster? Oh, lovely. I love it. Or this sort of guy. Mm, what's this? That blackcurrant, blackberry? I don't know. Check. Okay, so wine tasting is hard because you don't get it all at once. And also, things seem to be altered by the way you're attending to them. Now, that raises a question in philosophy of mind that's very delicate. Namely, when you attend to something, do you notice features of the experience you didn't notice? Or do you actually change your experience? Very hard to answer that question. So let me do a little experiment, <coughs> little experiment with you now. Okay, I want you now, all of you, just for a moment, to concentrate very seriously on the sensations you're having in your left foot. I just want you to think of the feel of your left foot. Now I bet you're more aware of your left foot than you were for the last half an hour. But the question is, have you made those sensations suddenly arise, or was it always like that? You were just listening to me, and now you're attending to the food. Difficult to know. So it's not obvious that philosophers can just answer this question. It may be that we can attend to things and find out what's going on. But the main thing to tell you is it's just not clear what your experience is like. I'm, I'm not going to mention this. This is all about wine tasting. We can do that later. Okay. Now, um, should we be focusing just on tastes? Actually, what we call taste proper, and not what we call taste when we're just talking loosely, what we call taste is coming from receptors on the tongue, receptors on the sides of the gums, and you've got some taste receptors in your gut. It's not over till it's over, right? You've got to kind of swallow it away. And you, mm, good. Um, so there are basic tastes. Now, the basic tastes, um, you'll have heard people say, oh, salt, sweet, sour, bitter. Um, but then if you're fancy, you say, oh, there's a fifth taste in mommy, and that shows you know, you've been keeping up. That's the savory flavor in kind of uh, uh, savory stew or monosodium glutamate tastes like that. 
But actually, they're more than that, because we think you've got receptors for metallic. In fact, you get metallic. If you get a metallic flavor in your mouth, that's kind of worrying for health reasons, so it's quite good you can detect it. So we probably have those. There's a bit of a discussion going on in the lecture about whether we've got fat detectors. It'd be funny if we didn't, given that we need fat in our diet or we die. Uh, so, you know, wouldn't it be good to code that rather than just saying, hmm, it's got that creamy feeling? Because, of course, people who make non-fat yogurts give you the creamy feeling by texture, but it hasn't actually got any fat in it. And it turns out it doesn't bluff the brain at all, so people eat two or three of those cartons, still trying to extract the good stuff. So they've given up the kind of emulsifying. All right. But look, those are what we call taste, metallic, salt, sweet, sour, bitter. But think of all the things that we ordinarily call tastes. Taste of ripe mangoes, fresh figs, lemon, cantaloupe, raspberries, coconut, green olives, ripe persimmon, onion, caraway, parsnip, peppermint, aniseed, cinnamon, fresh salmon, peppermint, blah, 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 blah. Okay? Now, can you manufacture those out of salt, sweet, sour, bitter, uh, metallic? Not obvious, is it? Um, here's a nice thought experiment. Try to imagine, says Sibley, a recipe to make the flavor of onion or pepper or raspberries or olives, add the following flavors or substances in the following proportions. You know, take salt or take sweet, now add plus, just from the basic list. You won't get it, right? So all of those things we just read out, these things, they're not tastes, they're smells. You cannot get them from taste alone, right? Now, we know now that taste is not going to give you most of what we call taste, which is actually a combination of taste and smell. And the resulting combination when you put taste and smell together is what we call flavor. And it depends on smell and it depends on other things. Now here's a, here's a very <coughs> dramatic way to get this point home. The use of the same word taste to refer to flavor and to the true gustatory sensations of salt, sweet, sour, bitter, metallic, blah, blah, lead to a variety of confusions. For a clinical example where patients lose olfaction, they often report that they cannot taste or smell. However, when questioned, patients acknowledge, so if it's a good doctor, they'll put drops on your tongue. You get that, salty, yes, sweet, yes, sour, yes, bitter. But the patients say, but nothing else. So everything else is smell. Right? I mean, that shows you how much of flavor is smell that when you lose smell, you think you can't taste anything. So that's actually a bit of a clue. So um, notice also how hard it would be just to have pure tastes. To have pure taste with nothing else would, re would require you to be able to place drops on people's tongue of salt or sweet or sour things or bitter things where they don't even feel the sensation. And in fact, that's very hard to do. When you go to the dentist, for uh, you, and you get anesthetized, you get one kind of anesthetic. You, you lose pain, but you still feel touch. You can feel the pressure, right? So you can feel where the, where the dentist is touching your tongue. But when you, but when you um, have to have other sorts of uh, numbness, when you actually have to not know when something's happening in your mouth at all, that's only possible by injecting you behind the ear. So if you inject behind the ear, you can then lose awareness of where anything is in the, in the mouth. It just disappears altogether. So it's only under those conditions that you could then have a pure sensation of taste. So notice that taste is not actually very uh, normal in your experience at all. You hardly ever just get taste. Hardly ever. All right. So um, 
Tastes would be hard, you wouldn't recognize them without smell. And then, uh, not just that, but what else goes into flavor? Well, tactile and haptic information I suggested, where you get texture, cream, uh, creamy, viscous, stale. That might make a difference. Um, and now we might think that all of these things go into taste. Now, here's a, here's a very obvious way in which you get touch, taste, and smell together. Take the flavor of menthol. So the flavor of menthol comprises the following. It's got a minty aroma, a bitter taste, and a cool sensation in the mouth. And those things are just experienced as one. Okay, a unified whole. The minty aroma is a smell, bitter taste from the tongue. Now, where do you get the cool sensation? You get that from the trigeminal nerve. So the trigeminal nerve is the facial nerve here, which uh, connects to the eye, connects to the nose, and into the, into the, 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 the mouth. When you get irritation of the trigeminal nerve, that's when you sometimes taste something as spicy or hot. So if you're eating wasabi mustard and you have a little too much, you get that pain in the nose, right? Oh, a little too much mustard. Also notice it makes your eyes run because it's the job of the trigeminal nerve to protect the eyes. So if everything gets a bit too hot around there, it'll just flood them. But also, it works the other way. When you have peppermint in the mouth or mint, it makes the mouth feel as though you're having a sensation that's very cool. But of course, there's no temperature change at all, whether you're having spicy hot or menthol cool. No temperature change. This is just because the part of the brain the trigeminal proje projects to is close to where thermal reception is done, and so it gives it a sensation as <coughs> if of, of heat or cold. All right. Also, chilies. Chilies do two things. They're very interesting. Chilies affect the trigeminal nerve and give you spiciness, but they also locally burn. Right, you can feel the bits of the mouth where they're working. So um, a lot is going on in what you think of as flavor. Plus there's the temporal dynamic. Perception is not a single event, but a dynamic process with a series of events that unfold one after the other. Okay, so that leads to the what I call the subtle sensation view. So subtle sensation view, this is where psychologists and neuroscientists tell us Flavor experiences are just manufactured by the brain, right? We have multi-sensory integration. We have all these sensory inputs. We've got olfactory, gustatory, oral somatosensory, trigeminal, maybe auditory and visual information, and they just collaborate and produce this single kind of unified construct, right? Uh, let's leave that out. Now, um, this is just, yeah, this is quite nice, just to show you that you get a fusing or a confusing of taste and smell. Uh, if you get um, if you get an aqueous or a sort of jelly substance, and you spray it with tasteless odor, and you put it in someone's mouth, even though they know you've done that, they cannot be dissuaded from thinking that they're tasting the jelly with their tongue as having a certain flavor. Now, if you block their nose and let them lick the jelly, there's nothing; it's tasteless. But if you put odor in the mouth when you put the um, the jelly in, they think they're touching it with the tongue. So that shows you that there's something interesting that goes on. It's called the location illusion. The location illusion means you're actually experiencing a smell in the nose, but it gets referred to the mouth. You mislocate a smell as occurring in the, in the oral cavity. So that's oral referral. Now the brain does that a lot. It takes information from one sense and it gets bias from another, and it, it unites them. So we do this all the time. We've got, uh, we've got that kind of referral uh, maybe going on in the cinema. 
So when you're in the cinema, you get the ventriloquist illusion. As you're watching the cinema, you think the voices are coming out of the mouths of people on the screen. But of course, that's not where the sound's coming from at all. It's coming from the sides of the theater, under your seat. Sometimes it's behind you. It's behind you. Right? So, um, and then the brain sees the mouths moving, and it hears the sound, and, and you get visual capture of auditory attention, and the audition is then relocated to where the mouths are. And notice it just has to be slightly out of sync, and the illusion's gone. That's not where the sound's coming from. The mouth isn't talking. So maybe this is what's happening here. I don't think it's quite right, but maybe that's what's happening. You're getting a smell, and you're getting sensations in the mouth. You're actually in contact with stuff. And the smell gets moved to the mouth. And maybe because a smell gets moved to the mouth, it gets interpreted by you as a taste. It must be a taste that's happening in the mouth. So there's a kind of, this view says, there's a, a false construction here. There's something illusory going on. And it matters whether this is genuine perception or illusion, and this is supposed to be illusion, according to the psychologists. All right. So smell goes missing from experience. You don't notice when you're tasting that smell is playing such a big part. Well, why is that? Well, because we're, we've got two senses of smell, and we're not, we're not keeping them separate. So two senses of smell are these. You have one route to the, this is where the olfactory receptor sheet is. This is the set of receptors that, that uh, react to odors. So you've got one route, which is the normal inhaling. And when you're inhaling, you're taking things from the environment into the nose. That's orthonasal. But when you're doing this, you're getting odors that pass from the mouth up through the, the nasopharynx, and they arise at the same receptor sheet the other way, and that's called retronasal olfaction. So maybe we have two senses of smell as human beings. And one sense of smell is very good for detecting things in the environment, predators, smoke, uh, food. But the other smell is good for measuring what you've just eaten and deciding is it any good, do I want any more, or was that, mm, that was a bit sour, or that was a bit off, off. That's, a, that's actually degraded, I don't think I'll have any more of that. Maybe I should eject it straight away. So one sense of smell is detecting you, the other sense of smell is detecting the world, and they're different. And uh, people don't recognize when you say smell is part of taste, they're thinking of that kind of smell, orthonasal smell. And they say, no, that's not part of taste. I can tell the difference between smelling and tasting. But, but when tasting goes on in the mouth, and you get this retronasal olfaction, that's the bit that contributes. And you can't pull it apart. You can't separate them. Now, just to show you there's a difference between retronasal and orthonasal, and I'm not going to go on much longer, but um, to show you there's a difference, um, uh, there's two kinds of pleasure. So Paul Rosen was the guy who discovered the two senses of smell, and he said, look, there are two kinds of pleasure associated with these two senses of smell. One's the pleasure of anticipation, and one's the pleasure of reward. So when you smell things, it gives you an expectation about how it will be to taste them. And you're looking forward to it. Or not. And then when you taste, there's sometimes a mismatch between how things smell and how they taste. So I'll give you two cases in different directions. Coffee. Don't you just love the smell of freshly brewed coffee? You know, it's been roasted, it's been brewed, you can smell it. You know, you walk into the kitchen or into the shop and you smell the aroma of coffee. And aren't you, truth to tell, just always a little disappointed? <laughs> <laughs> and 
surprising. It's all about aroma. So, you know, this is why coffee adverts all say, oh, the aroma of fish. They, they spend all the time telling you about the aroma because that's where the pleasure is. If you actually block the nose and taste coffee, you'll recognize that it's really hot water with a bitter flavor, sadly. So there's a reason why they're different, because orthonasal, orthonasal olfaction gives you 630 volatiles, very rich, the smell of coffee, huge amounts of, of uh, anticipation of pleasure. But when you get mixing with saliva, that strips off at least 300 of them. You'll never get the, the kind of quality hit. And yet people will spend the rest of their lives buying more and more expensive machines and trying to get the beans to survive the temperature. Give it up, give it up. So we've got this pleasure of anticipation, and yet the reward is a little disappointing. It goes the other way with Epoise, uh, that beautiful cheese from Burgundy. So here's that lovely, smelly, runny cheese, which uh, smells like a teenager's training shoe. Right? It smells of isovaleric acid. It's very, very strong. And you think, my god, do you want me to put that in my mouth? Putrid, almost makes the eyes run. But when you put it in your mouth, it's delicious. You think, ah, oh, ah, oh, it's actually quite nice. So here, the anticipation was of something really rather horrid, but when you had it, the reward was quite high. So it, it was it defied your expectations. So that tells you that orthonasal and retronasal are not going to match all the time. And in fact, the brain is so clever, depending on the direction of the airflow, whether the air is passing over the receptor sheet that way or that way, it projects to slightly different parts of the cortex. So they're, they're actually treated as separate uh, smells. Now there's one food uh, that has exactly the same intensity and aroma if you smell it and if you taste it, and it's, it's matched perfectly, and that's chocolate. And that's probably why it's a wonder food. So <laughs> you've got the pleasure of anticipation and you get a reward. It's like bingo, and the brain really loves that. It's like good, you know, good stuff. I wanted it, I got it, job done. So notice that, um, notice that we've got these things going on, and, and you have to see that I would say flavor is only about the second. Flavor is only about this. Everything else is, that's foreplay for food, right? That's kind of anticipating. It's not part of flavor. So I want to draw a boundary around the things that really go into flavor and the things that just, as it were, prepare you or stimulate you for flavor. Um, expectation has a strong effect on our perception of flavor. So Martin Yeomans, another guy working with Heston Blumenthal, Yeomans um, made this nice experiment. Blumenthal made him some smoked salmon <coughs> ice cream. And he broke the, the Sussex undergraduates into two groups. One of them is told, you're going to taste a novel ice cream, and I want you to tell me what it's like. Do you like it? How sweet is it? Is it, is it bitter? What sort of properties does it have? The other group are told you're going to try a, a frozen savoury mousse, right? Well, no prizes for guessing who liked it and who didn't like it. When you're told it's ice cream, horrible, and you're told it's frozen savoury mousse, quite nice. Um, but that's not the surprising thing. The surprising thing was that although the hedonics were different for group A and group B, the people who were told it was ice cream thought of it as saltier than the people who had uh, uh, the frozen savoury mousse. So how salty and how bitter it is might seem to depend on expectations and how intense the flavour is. So notice how difficult it is to get, as it were, a pure take on the flavour that you're tasting. So some people might say, oh, well, they just meant salty for an ice cream. That's, that's why they said it was saltier. 
you know, they had exactly the same kind of uh, experience. But I don't think that's right. Some earlier um, work by Carl Smith and Aronson, where they gave people um, sucrose solutions and uh, quinine solutions. Quinine's very bitter. And they would tell people, you're going to try some sucrose solution, and they give them the quinine, and they would taste it, and they'd go, oh, and they would rate it as more bitter. That's not because they thought that's better for a sweet solution. They didn't think it was sweet. It was just that the expectation seems to do something to, to what's going to happen. And also, orthonasal and retronasal olfaction interact in interesting ways. When you give somebody um, vanilla to smell when they're tasting a liquid or a substance, they will taste it as sweeter when it combines with vanilla. In fact, if I ask you, many of you will say, vanilla has a sweet smell. Now notice, sweet is a taste. Uh, so you're happy to talk about a sweet smell, which really means that you're getting an odor that's predicting uh, a taste. And also, if you put a bit of vanilla pod on your tongue, it's not sweet at all, it's quite bitter. But vanilla predicts sweetness, and this is called the sweetness enhancement effect. So when you give somebody a solution, and you could get them to rate it for sweet, you know, sweet, sweeter, 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 sweetest, and they can put them all in a row. And I go back to one of the samples, but I give you this with vanilla. It's now rated as tasting sweeter. So this is called um, a cross-modal effect. What's happening is activity in one modality, smell, is boosting activity in another modality, uh, taste, and, and giving you, as it were, um, a faulty take on what you're having. Why is it that ice cream makers sell huge amounts of vanilla ice cream to you? Because it's cheaper. You don't have to put so much sugar in, because if you get the vanilla, you're like, whoa, this is sweet, this is lovely. It's a good trick, and most of the food industry know these tricks very, very well. Okay. So, um, also, if you make something creamier, it tastes sweeter, so there's an interaction of touch on perceived sweetness. You can also try this at home. It's all right. I don't say don't try this at home. Try this at home. When you're, um, uh, you can also have an effect of taste on smell. When you're eating chewing gum, which has got a minty flavor, you know that moment where you've chewed and chewed and chewed and now the mint is gone, right? Take the mint out, roll it in a bit of icing sugar, pop it back in the mouth, the mint will be back. Interesting, because there's no mint in sugar, right? So what seems to be happening is, here, a taste on the tongue is boosting the activation of um, the, the smell receptors and then bringing back what would be a mint aroma. So there's a huge amount of interaction between the senses in producing what you call a flavor. It's a complicated picture. But I want to end by asking, um, uh, too many slides. I want to end by asking, okay, if we've got all of this going on, what all goes into flavor? Do we want to put the whole kitchen sink into flavor? Do we want to say not just taste, touch, and smell? Should we have sight? Should we have hearing? Let me rush through slides and get to the, the funny bits. Okay. Uh, here are the funny bits. Okay. All right. Ah, no, it doesn't show me. Oh, okay. So this is why I needed the Mac conversion. Okay, I, I can do it. Do we want to say that, that um, vision and sound have a role to play in flavor? Do we want to say that they contribute to flavor? Um, well, Charles Spence uh, from Oxford, he won the Ig Nobel Prize. Maybe some of you remember. He won the Ig Nobel Prize um, for the effect of sound on taste. And it works like this. 
if you leave if you leave Pringles out of their box for two days, the Pringles taste stale. People pick them up and they go and they go, yeah, not very fresh, right? Tastes stale. So what Spence did, and colleagues, was um, he got these hungry undergraduates to chop their way through lots and lots of Pringles, and then he put headphones on them, and the headphones um, play back to them the high-frequency sound of their own crunching as they bite. And if you amplify the high-frequency sound of crunching, they taste fresh. <laughs> Interesting. Now, that's why, that's why Charles wanted to say, so when we say something is stale, why think of that as just a flavor? Why not think of that as a sound-flavor combination? Why not think hearing is part of there's also some nice stuff he did with Blumenthal, the end of his hungry. Or something I can't resist telling you is it's wonderful to work with Pringles because they're identical. This is a, an experimenter's dream, right? They're all the same shape. It's just like every time. Beautiful. Um, so the other thing he did was he took um, Blumenthal came along to the lab and, and cooked oysters and fried oysters and then you half them, like and you, you number the, the halves of little sticks. And you give half to uh, the hungry undergraduate, and then you give the other half a moment later. But when they're eating one half, they're getting white noise in the ear. And when they're eating the other half, they're hearing the sound of the sea. And when they're hearing the sound of the sea, the half of the oyster tastes saltier. Right? So this is obviously, I think, a way in which sound is influencing uh, reception. And of course, on the basis of this, uh, Blumenthal went on to create this dish called the Sound of the Sea, famously at the Fat Duck restaurant, where you're, you're brought the dish, uh, it looks like sand on the sea, there's a bit of seaweed, there's a bit of fish, there's a foamy kind of uh, imitation of a wave, and the diner is brought a little iPod, and you put the <laughs> iPod, and you hear this whoosh, whoosh, and some seagulls, very, very beautiful, very relaxing, and then people start eating this, and it's, uh, and you can't help, when you do it, you can't help thinking it came from there, you can sort of imagine the sea and think it came from that. Very clever stuff. But should we put should we put sound in? Uh, should we put uh, vision in? Let's see. No, it doesn't do this either. Ah, okay. So I'll describe the experiment, and you'll you'll you know what I'm after. So um, Wheatley, it, it was going to actually do it for you. Wheatley in the 70s gave people in funny lighting, in ultraviolet lighting, he gave them a plate of lots of people sitting there at tables eating a plate of steak, peas, and chips. Reading steak, peas, and chips, and he gets them to talk about it, and he asks them. Um, how well is the steak cooked? Is the meat tender? Um, what about the chips? What about the peas? And people are all discussing it. They're all having a good time. And then he flips the, the lighting to real lighting. And the steak is blue. The peas are red. The chips are green. And people involuntarily retch. Right? So um, very fast effect. Now they've been eating it and talking about it and thinking about it. But as soon as they see it, right, incredibly fast reaction. So people want to say, so vision is part of uh, flavor. And I don't think we should say that. So um, what do I think we should say? I think, oops, I think we should say there's a difference. Uh, do I want that? No, no, no. I think there's a difference between whether we, uh, whether we treat um, elements of our senses as constitutive of a flavor experience. They're part of it. They constitute it. Or whether they're just causally affecting so we want this distinction between things which can have a causal impact, can affect the way we perceive flavor, 
and things which are really part of flavor, actually, you know, one of the contributing elements. So retronasal olfaction is, for me, part of flavor. If you didn't have that, you don't get flavor. People think they've lost their sense of taste. But um, the, the, the smell orthonasally, when you smell vanilla, and that enhances sweetness, I think that's giving an illusion of how something actually tastes. And equally, the same for vision and the same for sound. These things can influence and distort our experience of a taste of flavor, but they're not part of taste of flavor. Now, what about touch? Well, touch is interesting because somehow or other, we have to make smell at the back of the nose and taste in the mouth bind together. We must make them lock together. And how do we do that? And it looks as though taste is how we do that. Sorry, touch is how we do that. It's because we're actually experiencing sensations in the mouth that you get the referral of the smell to the mouth and that you get these two things wedded together so that they seem inseparably part of the overall flavor. So I think we do want just touch, taste, and smell. We don't want sight, we don't want sound. But given how much sight and sound and expectation can impact on our perception of flavor, it shows you that tasting things correctly is rather hard. And it's not obvious when we're getting it right. Okay, I'll stop now. Thank you. There's a mouse that's just gone across the floor. <laughs> and it's headed, it's headed into the cables there, so if the lights go out, the mice are next to Oh my god. Well, um, we have about 25 minutes for questions. Um, do you want to take your own questions? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, you talked about super tasters, yeah. and I was just wondering if you think children are all super tasters, because if you have a child of red wine, they're all screwed at this or beer. Right, and also if you give them bitter things. Mm. So it's, uh, it's very interesting that, um, and, and beer and so on, very interesting if you give children things that are bitter, like green vegetables or beer or whatever, um, they'll reject them. And some people used to think it was because bitterness, uh, the bitterness threshold was very low in children and then it raises a little and it becomes higher, they're more tolerant. But in fact, I think what we now know and believe at least and seems a lot of evidence for is children probably don't <coughs> the integration of flavors they don't integrate this information together until they're actually quite old, until about three. They may, not, they may be getting these as rather separate pieces of information, not the unified property we do. So once bitterness is accompanied by other things, it becomes more tolerable because it's just one of the elements in a kind of ensemble or a, or a unity of flavors. Now, why do children have a aversion to bitterness? It's very good they do because most toxins, not all, but most toxins are bitter. So they're going to repel things that are toxins. So that's actually quite good. It's a protective mechanism. But I think it's only when they can put that experience in with all the others that you'll actually get the, the kind of tasting the whole and not just locking on to the bitter flavor. So I think what's going on. Is that, is that akin to learning to appreciate fine wine? I think, I think there might be something like that. It yeah, might be something like that in the, um, I mean, when people drink a wine and they say, oh, it's got that flavor I don't like, I always say, don't concentrate on that. 
Because if they concentrate on it, they not only just think about that, but they suppress the other flavors that they no longer are kind of attending to. And you need the other flavors. You know, it's rather like going to an orchestra and, and somebody saying, oh, I hate the sound of the violin. If they're just listening to the strings, they're going to miss the kind of whole thing. It's like, no, 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 don't give that such prominence. Try to put it together. But of course, if you're a super taster, it means that you're going to get that sort of blaring note, which is going to distort and put out of balance everything else. Yeah. One, one and then two. Um, so you separated out flavor from liking and dislike. Yeah. Uh, flavor is objective. Do, yeah. do you think the liking and disliking is then entirely subject? Yeah. I think it's entirely subject. It, it, it's conventional and it's, uh, well, um, it's what you're used to as much as anything else. So it turns out that um, you know different cultures will have different tolerances for certain things, and it's it's often because of what's been in the diet. And the brain tends to like similarity and familiarity. So you know there are people who are very um, food averse to new foods, um, and if somebody doesn't like something, again the thing to, to say to them is just keep having it, and it'll get better. We think of acquired tastes. Most of us didn't like alcohol when we were young. But we do now. Gee, how did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's not rocket science. It was adults had it, and it, it was supposed to get you drunk, and so we made ourselves have it until eventually we came to like the thing that predicted the effect that we liked. So I think there's a little bit of that going on. But I do think, yeah, I do think liking and disliking is still going to be very idiosyncratic. Sometimes we know what the idiosyncrasy is built on, and sometimes there is perhaps an interaction with taste in this way. So we've now discovered what the gene is that you have it or you don't makes a difference to your tasting of coriander or cilantro for uh, North Americans. Uh, you turns out that some people taste coriander as um, metallic and soapy. I'm one of those. And other people can cut up sort of nice raw pieces of stuff it into their mouth as if it was parsley or something tolerable. Now it just turns out it just turns out the population simply divides into the soapy metallic and then delicious. But here's the question for the objectivist. Uh, it's kind of uncomfortable for me, but I'm prepared to bite the bullet. Either the guys who are tasting it as soapy and metallic are tasting what it's really like, and the other people are missing that, and that's why they're able to have it and like it. Or um, I'm given something that distorts my ability to taste the real cilantro or coriander, and therefore I can't see how delicious it is. And I think it's one or other of those, but we don't know which. Mm -hmm. uh, sorry, yes. Yes, um, I found your talk very interesting. Um, I, I think it is clear that our sensations of taste are going to be a combination of the object uh, tasted and its properties and our sensory apparatus, and also any number of other um, cognitive uh, features, memories, um, uh, anticipations, and so I'm not sure whether you could um, rule out anything, uh, whereas you were saying, I think, that if I look and see how awful this looks, then and then I suddenly say, oh my god, it's disgusting, but I'm actually uh, making a mistake, yeah. whereas I can well imagine if I saw right away how awful it looked, I'd say it's disgusting, and then you wouldn't say it's a mistake, or... Is it that you think I'm mistaking what's really there, but not my impression? Yeah, yeah. So, so you're you're going for I think the other, um, the other very um, 
interesting view that, that gives my view a hard time. So I, I've been very naughty because I've said, I've said either the taste is in there or in here, and you're going for the relational view, right? I, if I understand you, you're saying, look, there's some relation between what's going on here and what's going on here, and it's the relations that matter, and many, many things can influence that relation. Now, I think that's, a, that's an important view, uh, but I'm not for it. Why? Because I think there are too many relations between me and that stuff. If it was a little warmer or I was a little colder, you get a different relation. So there would be as many tastes as there are different states of it and me. Whereas actually, I think under some conditions, I'm just not getting it right. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not tasting it as it is. So for example, if I'm tasting the wine and then I brush my teeth and I come back and I taste the wine, it's not so good. And what's more, I think, well, the wine hasn't changed. I'm just no longer able to get it. Or if I have a cold, I'm not getting the taste of the wine. If I have um, lemon on my salad dressing, I will then say, with the lemon on the salad dressing, that lovely, crisp, white, fresh wine becomes flat and dull because the acidity is, is masking the acidity of the wine. But, but for you, you'd say, well, that's just another flavor the wine has. It's the flavor in relation to the salad dressing and meat. So I think there are ways of getting at what the wine really has. And, and, and you know, one of the things I think is when a, a waiter brings me a bottle of wine, and it could be red, and it's too warm, I think I'm not getting the real taste of that wine. So I say, could you chill it? Just I, I even sort of feel I know exactly how much by one degree, two degrees. And I predict what I'll get, and I get it, and I think that's the flavor of the wine. That's where everything shows. So I don't think it's about different relations. I think it's about the state of getting at the flavor. Even though the liking part can vary? Yeah, because the liking part can certainly vary. But look, the liking part varies over your life. When I was young, I used to think fish fingers were delicious, and I know they're not. I was just wrong. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, Sure, I'd have eaten them to my heart's content, but I was just wrong that they were delicious. Uh, similarly, it could be the case that, I mean, hidden for fame, that I lose my sense of taste, and then I suddenly say to you, well, look, you might as well have the rest of my case of Chateau Margot, it's delicious, but it's not delicious to me. And that just means I can't get at it, but I still think it's a property of the, of the wine, yeah. Yes? Um. I kind of agree that the taste is in the is a property of uh, what we are drinking or, or eating, but I wonder if uh, in your experiments you have thought or you have done um, some selective uh, groups experiment. So, for example, it could be class, it could be perhaps somebody with a visual impairment mm -hmm. who have a different response, and mm -hmm. other groups, so that you will get probably a different response, and you may do some medical. Uh, groups, I don't know, they have maybe different uh, levels of acidity already in the blood, I'm not sure. Sure. You do, you do have to check for that. I mean, when you, when, you, when you do the testing for tasters, you have to make sure that they have normal um, uh, breathing apparatus and that they haven't had problems with sinus. Um, if, if they've had sinus problems or disrupted airflow problems, that will make a difference. And you want to kind of exclude them. Um, the, the interesting thing that I think is important about groups is not so much um, class as um, interesting big differences in cultures. So for example, remember I said to you, if you smell vanilla and then you taste something, it will taste sweeter. That's not true for um, the Japanese or for Southeast Asians. Why? 
because they don't combine vanilla with sweetness in the diet the way we do. And quite often they will combine vanilla with salt or vanilla or cherry uh, benzaldehyde, the cherry flavor with salt. And so they get a salt enhancement effect, whereas we get a sweetness enhancement effect. So that's kind of interesting, because then you might want to say, take the very same dish, and this, this work's been done by Chen and Crayon and colleagues in, in, in France, um, take the very same dish and give it to Australians, and they say, too salty, and give it to the Japanese, and they say, just right. And then you take another dish, and you give it to the Australians, and they say, just right, and you give it to the Japanese, and they say, too sweet. Now the question is, is that dish salty or not? Now, many options. One option is to go relativist and to say, there's, there's a fact of the matter for the Japanese, and there's a fact of the matter for the Australians. It's different. I'm slightly tempted by that. Or you could say, no, it's just a construction. It's all about you know what we what we uh, make or experience of it. But another thing is to say, well, uh, these are kind of illusions when vanilla is having uh, an effect on salt or sweet. It's actually a way in which you're manipulating expectation, and it's not really that that's the flavour of the dish at all. So there's there's the dish, and if you gave it without salt or without sweet, they're probably both getting similar reactions to it. But you can influence their expectations by giving them vanilla. And I, I, I think that might be the way to protect ourselves. But there are huge cultural differences, and it's based on what's in our diet. Pretty much, I think. Does that help? Is that what you were after? Okay, okay. Uh, yes, and then. I'm curious about what you mentioned about the chocolate being the one food where the retronasal and orthonasal match. match. Um, given that in its raw form, cacao doesn't taste particularly nice mm -hmm. at all. Mm -hmm. And um, like you just said, the vanilla is just a kind of learned um, association that yes. we have with the sweetness. Yes. And those two things are combined in chocolate. Yeah. So why on earth do we like it so much? So why do we like two it? Ingredients that are in right, right. Well, of course, it makes a difference if it's milk or, or bitter chocolate, so that the, the more uh, cocoa solids there are, the more bitter it will taste, and people's bitterness uh, threshold will be different. But um, even with bitter chocolate, the thing that's important about it is when you smell it and when you taste it, you're not, you're not mismatching your expectation. So there is a kind of sourness that comes off, um, sourness and, and hint of bitter expectation from dark chocolate that, that's matched by how it tastes. Um, it's not. It's not that uh, you necessarily like that. It's the fact that you can find a food which you like and which you get expectation for, and then you get what you were expecting. The, it's interesting that with the expectation retro and orphanasally, nice experiments people do where they put tubes up the nose and in the mouth, and they give you it retronasally and orthonasally, and they put headphones on and they give you noise, so you don't get the click when the machine changes from delivering it one way or another way. Uh, lavender is the same, but lavender is not a food flavor. But lavender matches uh, what you smell retronasally or orthonasally. So there, there, there are very few, but there are some compounds that are exactly the same in both directions. And that's just a fact about how many odors can be registered in those two different directions by the brain in roughly the same way. Um, lavender is quite a nice smell. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. But we, don't, we would be surprised if we had it in our mouth. So you get it's actually the combination, it's not just the cacao. It's, it's not just the cacao, no, no, it's the combination. Also, there are, there are huge amounts of things in chocolate that, you know, mm -hmm. that the, the, the brain and body needs sort of, there's something close to opiate. I mean, we do get, we do get a high and a kick. 
And it's the fact that when you expect it, you get it. There's also reward there. It's like, hmm, bingo, that's, that's good. Yes? Um, you were telling us about, about taste, boosting smell, yeah. and vice versa. Yeah. And uh, you, you didn't say anything about synesthesia. And, uh, right. You're right, I didn't. And I'll <laughs> <you on. laughs> It's it, well, well known examples of synesthesia are, for example, that, that red is said to be a warm colour, mm -hmm. or blue is said to be a cold colour. Yep. And uh, it, it's also commonly said, falsely, I believe, that most people don't experience synesthesia because that there is a tradition that uh, musicians are supposed to hear colours and, and, and on, yeah. on this kind of evidence people are supposed to be um, unusual if yeah. they experience <coughs> but as, as I've just tried to illustrate that, that that's a false perception and I think you must have come across synesthesia in your research. Sure. So I'm sure. wondering what you can tell us okay. about, about taste and synesthesia. Right. So, so there are some people who think uh, that it is a case of synesthesia. Flavor perception is just sort of generalized synesthesia, the effects of taste on smell and smell on taste and so on. Um, I don't want to call it synesthesia because I still think synesthesia is uh, an idiosyncratic combining. There are more people who are synesthetic in some direction than we thought. And very often they're surprised that other people aren't. But you know, the common ones are numbers with colors, or um, or signs with colors. There are unusual ones, like the like the ones that Sitovich and colleagues discovered. There's a man in France who experiences ta tastes as shapes in his hand, and it's the shape of the dishes that uh, he's a cook, and it's the shape of the dishes that influence what he combines. He said, "Oh, you can't have a sharp." With a, you know, with, a, with a round or with a jagged flavor, you have to, and, and, you know, and he always uses shape talk to talk about um, flavors. But this is, everyone in the population, everyone in the population does that uh, with flavor, the, the taste-smell combination. So I don't want to, I want synesthesia still to be kind of a, a proportion of unusual experience that some people have and other people don't, rather than having it across the board. But I see the temptation for that. By the way, there's a conference, a one-day conference at the Institute of Philosophy on December the 12th on synesthesia, where you can hear the latest research by neuroscientists and philosophers. But, but synesthesia, I think, is um, different from the following. Here's something that's not synesthesia, but it could be very closely related to it. Cross-modal correspondences. So cross-modal correspondences are where we, we make uh, those analogies, like the ones you say, uh, red being a warm color. We go from an experience in one modality to an experience in another. But unlike synesthesia, where people just disagree about whether Tuesday's green or red or orange, you know, everybody has roughly the same. Um, we tend to say that bitter notes are low and, uh, and uh, acid notes are high. We tend to say acid is a sharp taste, sharp's a, a, a touch. Those are very, very consistent across the population. So people can use um, another modality with a correspondence to, to, to this modality, but those are very regular. Um, here's, here's one I like, and we've no idea why it is. So if I say to you all, here's an experiment, I say to you all, and I want you to reply very fast, don't, don't think about it, just say. Um, so 
If you had to put lemons on a scale between fast and slow, what would lemons be? Fast, exactly. Fast. Everyone says fast, and we've no idea why. It's just <laughs> we're wired that way. Now that I think is that's what I would call cross-modal correspondence, but it's not as idiosyncratic as uh, synesthesia, where somebody would say Tuesday is green, and another person says no, 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 it's orange. Right? Where it's really a kind of very it's it's regular and consistent within the individual, but it's not it's not shared across the population. So the things you, you, you mentioned, red, warm, color, and so on, I think these are those generalizations that apply to us all, so I reserve those as not synesthesia, just to mark the difference. Yeah? Um, is there a variation, like genetic variation, between different populations in how they taste, if there is some population who has been very isolated for a long time? So you might suspect that there might be some adaptation yeah. yeah, I mean, it'd be good to know that. We, we, need, we actually need more cultural anthropology here. Trouble is that um, you've got the, the, the anthropologists who go and look at people uh, and talk about taste and flavors are very interested in very high level cultural associations and so on. But we actually want people who go in and do the, you know, the basic psychophysics with them and actually ask them about you know, rating things on scales. So there isn't enough information. It's interesting when you look at, um, it's interesting when you look at uh, textbooks about cooking and so on in, say, medieval England. So medieval England, um, most people used to talk about there being seven or eight basic tastes. And there were two salts. There was salty and salty like the sea. And those were just like different. They were just different, right? There wasn't a grade of intensity of salt. They were different flavors. And you kind of wonder whether they really had that kind of separation. But then you get into questions, Worfian questions. So we know in, in the color space that in Russian, there's a word for light blue and dark blue, and those are seen as different colors. But to us, they just seem as you know, lighter or darker intensities of hue of the same color. So how do those categories get fixed? Do they get fixed by culture? Do they get fixed by physiology? Uh, if you go with you know, um, uh, some of the color theorists, you get the universalists who say it's, it's physiology, and actually you can always tell the difference you know, between uh, the kind of artificial constructed colors and the real colors, and then other people say it's cultural. So there's the same question about categories, I think, is, is interesting, about how, how much it depends on culture is interesting uh, here, but we just don't have the research. Nobody's actually done that, and they need to. We need to do that. Yeah? Uh, another question about culture. You talked earlier about uh, taste um, being altered by attention. Yes. yes. Um, and I was wondering about the degree of difference um, there might be where you get either a social environment or a culture where there's a, a, a lot of discussion or yeah. communication yeah. or focus yeah. on taste. People sit around the table and talk about it. The French. Yeah, <laughs> it's beginning to happen over here yeah. as well. Yeah, it's beginning. It's getting more interesting. Yeah, it's beginning. How, I mean, does that make a difference? Not, not in terms necessarily of yes. altering yes. perceptions <coughs> or experience, but, but how we perceive it in different ways. Yeah. I think it does or make a difference. Yeah, no, I think it does make a difference. So, so there are several things in your question. One is, how do we actually taste it? And then there's, how do we communicate it? And of course, some people can be very good tasters and not very good communicators. And then some uh, writers 
are, have found a way both to be good tasters and good communicators. I mean, if you look at the good, if you look at the really good wine writers like Hugh Johnson and so on, they always say to you, "I'm first and foremost a writer." You know, it's it's the writing and the kind of clever writing that will get me to communicate something to you. Not that I'm, yeah, not that I'm. I mean, so one of my favourite tasting notes is uh, Jancis Robinson tasting a 1945 Chateau Petrus. And she had written her notes very quickly. She was drinking all these great wines. It was the last days of the ambassador, the British ambassador in Paris, so he decided to empty the cellar and invited all his favorite wine and friends and critics and drank his way through them. It's a great idea. Um, and uh, so Robinson was, was drinking all these things and she was making quick notes. And in the morning, she wanted to remember how this great wine, this Chateau Petrus from 45, how it tasted. She looked at her notes and it said, like velvet but with a pattern on it. <laughs> you want to taste that wine, right? But also you recognize that's about sheer skill in suggesting something, because she's a great writer, great imagination. So there's, there's, there's that. Second thing about the French is that um, uh, they're worried about losing the culture. They're very worried because you know, a lot of young professionals are not cooking and not developing as much of an interest. They're, they're eating. Uh, Le Big Mac, and they're you know, going to supermarkets, and they're having fast food, and the French are horrified. <laughs> so, so the French have started only only a kind of a state that provides all of this sort of planning and forethought. They've, they've now they're now giving classes to eight-year-olds um, in school, which is great, and they have these tasting classes. and And one of the lessons is where they ask each child to ask their parents to give them something to bring in for the rest of the children to taste, and they will all discuss it, and they're to bring something unusual. And, and, and you, you watch these videos of these lovely little kids, and they're saying, yes, this is sweet, but not really like a pineapple. It's a little more like, and you know, they're all discussing, discussing. And this is France deliberately <laughs> protecting its food industry and thinking, we have to make them care, and then they will be choo choosers, and then they will continue to discuss, and you know, we will protect the cheeses and the wines and the farmers and everything else. So yes, it makes, it makes a difference, because that attention it's important. Another thing that changes your perception of food is um, uh, not attending to it because attending so much elsewhere. When you're eating in front of the TV, you, we, we now know from the research, you tend to eat more because you eat quickly and you don't notice. So you go like that. And you just, it's like, I haven't noticed. And you can actually slow people's uh, food eating down and also uh, their consumption down by making them pay attention to what they're eating. So attention to eating gives the brain better predictions of when you're full or satisfied. Here's an interesting thing. When you eat, it's not true that you know immediately how full you are. It takes two hours for the body to have digested and, and registered what it's got. Two hours. So in fact, what you're doing when you eat is predicting, the brain's a good predictor, of when you will be full, when it stops you because it's predicting now you're going to feel full. So part of the problem in obesity is that people have lost that ability to predict. So, I mean, we, we know these experiments. Martin Yeomans, I've talked about, he's got these nice experiments in Sussex. You've got uh, bowls with tomato soup, and you get the undergraduates come in and eat it, and what they don't know is there's a little tube under the desk that's <laughs> refilling the bowl slowly, <laughs> and they will eat about two gallons of the soup. <laughs> <laughs> So it's not about, oh, I've had oh, enough soup. It's about, you know, you're using visual clues, you're using all sorts of things to predict. So 
You need to make people attend to their food to regulate their intake. To regulate their intake. Yeah, their undergrads. To regulate their intake. I mean, but there's an interesting fact. There's another thing about what the brain does by way of prediction. This is, a, this is alarming. Again, it's yeoman's work. Um, you, you, gave these, you gave people um, crushed ice with cranberry flavor. It's got absolutely no nutrition in it at all. It's just a flavor of cranberry and crushed ice. They're eating it. They don't particularly like it. A week later, you bring them in. And you're getting them to give you ratings of things so that they're not attending to that alone. A week later, he gives them a smoothie with a very high fat content with the cranberry flavor and another smoothie with a much lower fat content and so on. They have that. You bring them back, you give them the cranberry ice, they eat a lot. And they don't know why. You say, well, why did you? Oh, that's quite nice. So the brain has figured out that's a clue to fat content, have that. So, so think of how the food industry is doing this. It's doing this a lot, and, and it's dangerous. So the only way to overcome some of these things is actually to make people more aware of what they're doing rather than less. Um, talking about balanced food, that's something Coca-Cola is regarded as a really balanced food. And do you know, and therefore tastes good to all the people, do you know any other foods that have been carefully concocted to give that sense of balance? I'll tell you the best balanced food in the world, and that's why it's the most successful, Heinz ketchup. <laughs> Heinz ketchup has got the best balance of salt, sweet, sour, bitter. It's an absolute perfection of, of getting those into balance. If you have fancy chefs making fancy uh, ketchup and you give it to people, they'll say, no, I still want hands, I still want hands. You know, create hands. Now, when you said Coke is balanced, it's not at all. But there's, a, there's a trick with Coke, and it's a trick with lots of fizzy drinks. Carbonation. Why are those drinks carbonated? Carbonation, which irritates the trigeminal nerve, accentuates acidity and bitterness, and that suppresses sweetness. So you can make the drinks much sweeter as long as they're carbonated. So it's not for nothing that those evil drinks that make people you know, fat and unhappy is that you're putting lots of carbonation in. They know that's what makes you tolerate more sugar. And the brain likes the sugar. Okay, with that, unfortunately, we're out of time. I know we could go on forever, but you can all come back next week and uh, continue Thank the you. questions then. So thanks very much for coming, and thanks very much to Barry for this excellent presentation.